Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Human organ transplantation has saved the lives of countless people around the world. But here in the U.S., there are currently more than 120,000 individuals on a wait list to receive life-saving organs such as heart, liver, kidneys, or lungs. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law, the home of cutting-edge legal thought. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Our guest is Glenn Cohen, professor of law at Harvard Law School and an internationally recognized expert on the topic. Glenn, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you for having me. Why don't we begin with a core question. What is the reason for this disparity? Why so much more demand than supply? Yeah, so right now in the last year, in 2013, that we have data from, there was about 21,000 uh, annual gaps, or so a 21,000 person shortage per year of people added versus people who need transplantation. And the reason is partially a good news story and a bad news story. The good news story is that some of the sources of organs have dwindled as homicides and vehicular accidents as causes of death of young people have gone down. So it's good news. We're having fewer traffic accidents. So less fewer. DUIs means less fresh organs. That's one way of looking at it. And the bad side of the story, also, well, there's another good part of the story, which is that people are living longer. The longer you live, the more likely you are to need a kidney, for example. We've also improved the technology of immunosuppressive drugs, so drugs that help uh, suppress the immune system, which means we can have a larger number of compatible donors. So those are all uh, the good news story. The bad news story is that some of our health habits, diabetes, hypertension, and the like, also makes it more likely that we'll need a kidney transplant than, let's say, 50 years ago, for example. So the end result is that we have much more demand than we do supply, and the gap is about 21,000 a year in terms of who's being added to the wait list. So 21,000 people more who need an organ than transplants done in a given year. And people are dying as a result. Yes, people are dying, people are delaying. We also have a lot of people going on kidney dialysis, which is very unpleasant if you've ever known someone with dialysis. It's a major commitment. It's many days a week you have to sit uh, in the dialysis machine. It's painful, and it's also very expensive. So we've been talking about a little bit about kidneys. What about other organs, heart, lungs, liver? So uh, there are other categories of donation, but kidney is really the big ticket item in terms of both the demand and the need and the costs uh, involved. But certainly there are donations of liver lobes, for example. There are pancreas donations. There are heart donations and lung donations, although some of those obviously have to be done categorically because you can't live without those organs. What's nice about kidneys is each of us have two. They tend to fail in tandem, so most people live a very good life with just one kidney. And indeed, the data suggests that the expectation of your morbidity and mortality uh, as a kidney donor, so your life expectancy and how good your life will be, uh, if there's any difference from non-donors, it's very small indeed. So people can very safely donate a kidney and still live a very good life. What's interesting is we frame this as a problem, and it is a problem that we would like to have these kidneys. But there's some people who say, it's a problem that results from successes we've had in pushing the boundaries of medicine as we go. As life expectancy, as our ability to do kidney matches improves, right, we're creating some of the problem we're now trying to solve. So in some ways, it's a good problem to have. Uh, the reasons to have the problem are good, but we'd like to do whatever we could to try to meet the gap in demand. So we're living longer, but as a population, we're not necessarily getting healthier. Why can't 
I, as a sick individual, go out and pay someone to donate their organ? Yeah, so the first reason is the law in the United States makes it illegal. We have the National Organ Transplant Act, which has been around for a good number of decades now, and that explicitly forbids you from buying or selling uh, a kidney, and actually, or any organ. And it uses the term valuable consideration, and there are actually a number of questions about paired kidney exchange. So imagine uh, I have a loved one for whom I'm not a match. You have a loved one for whom you're not a match. Can we do a kind of transaction where we each agree to donate to someone else, kind of strangers on a train for kidneys, if you will? Uh, and for a long time, a lot of hospitals said, we're really unsure whether you can do this. Is this allowed or does that count as valuable consideration under the statute? And it actually took a statutory amendment to officially sanction that activity and get that going. And now we actually have these interesting things called NEAD chains, which are long chains where you'll pay one person forward with a kidney, paying it forward with a kidney, to someone else, to someone else, to someone else, until maybe 17 people later, it comes back. And ideally, these long chains are great because you have many people getting kidneys who wouldn't get kidneys. But if in fact somebody defects, if midway through the chain, I just decide that I actually don't want to donate, that I received or my loved one received, but I don't want to donate, actually the law can't compel you to donate. So the longer wow. the chain gets, the more risk there is that there's going to be a defection. And it's not like a contract where you can get specific performance. There's no pound of flesh uh, here in the Shakespearean sense that you can demand. Uh, just to delve a little bit deeper into what you're describing, basically that scheme would be, I want to give you my kidney. We're not a match. So I find another person who's in need. They have a friend who's willing to donate who who's not a match, so it would would be kind of a, a swap or a continuation where there's more kidneys coming in, but they'll go to the people whose friends donated? Exactly. So usually there has to be somebody to initiate. There often has to be a first person in the chain who is just giving altruistically entirely and not getting any benefit, right? And like a, a dominoes, as you pay one forward, it can go around until it reaches the end of the chain. And one of the reasons why I highlight this is that originally the statutory language left open the question, is this so different from paying your friend to donate a kidney at first, right? You're getting something out of it. Somebody you love is getting a kidney who would not otherwise maybe not get a kidney. And yet the statute has now drawn a sharp distinction between that kind of activity and other kinds of incentives like actually paying people. Well, let's take a look at what the statute actually prescribes. So what happens if I pay you to receive your kidney? Yeah, so you would have committed a crime under the statute if you did it in the United States. There is a gap that I've actually written about that if you were to buy a kidney abroad from someone in Pakistan or India or the like, the U.S. statute has no extraterritorial extension. So it does not purport to govern conduct that occurs offshore. And indeed, uh, one of the reasons why we have the statute to begin with was there was this uh, doctor who testified before Congress when they were considering this and basically made a big thing about how he was going to go to the Caribbean and other places and get uh, people who lived abroad to sell their kidneys and then use that to transplant to American patients. So on hearing this news, this statute kind of came about some of the hysteria over that possibility. But what's interesting is that even though that is the genesis, in reality the statute itself does not cover extraterritorial conduct, only buying and selling a kidney in the United States. So you might violate the law of India to buy a kidney there, but you wouldn't violate the law of the United States to buy a kidney in India and come back with your kidney. So basically he wanted to open a clinic in Virginia 
But if he now, if he opens the same clinic in the Bahamas, the U.S. law doesn't apply. Right. So if I go to uh, the Bahamas or to Pakistan or Bangladesh, where there are these uh, illegal markets that occur, and much of this is run by a low-level kind of thuggery, uh, they're kind of low-level mobsters because you have to hire a doctor, a nurse, find an OR willing to do all of this, all of which is illegal. But if I, as a U.S. doctor, relocate myself to Bangladesh, and in Bangladesh I get a Bangladeshi donor or even a U.S. donor to come there and sell me the kidney there. I shouldn't use the word donor. Seller to sell the kidney there, uh, and I buy the kidney as the U.S. citizen and come back with my kidney, I violated no U.S. law. The statute explicitly only covers uh, transactions that occur within the United States, not transactions that occur abroad. What happens, I guess, more specifically under this law if I violate, if I sell my kidney, what type of punishment am I likely to see? You've committed a crime and you could go to jail or pay a fine. So it's, are people ever actually in prison for this kind so of thing? So it's fairly rare the prosecutions are actually brought under the statute. I believe that actually there was a rabbi in Brooklyn who was charged with running an organ ring uh, for wealthy uh, Israelis, among others, and was charged under the statute, and I think he actually pled guilty. But there have been very few trials uh, and very few convictions under the statute, just because the statute itself discourages a lot of people. In part because, again, just to emphasize this, you need a lot of technology. You need an OR, you need a surgeon, you need a nurse to do this. And I think the risks of violating the statute for all those people are high enough in the United States that they have not been tempted to do it illegally within the United States. Elsewhere in the world, we see robust uh, black markets in these things. But in the U.S. at least, uh, there isn't that many cases that I know of where someone's actually been prosecuted under the statute. So this law came into effect somewhere in the 80s and has criminalized the sale of organs. Why? What's the rationale? So there are a few of them. So the typical arguments that have been offered to defend the prohibition on buying and selling kidneys or other organs are as follows. One is what I call corruption. And corruption is the idea that there is a way in which a good is properly valued, and this devalues it by treating it as equivalent to money. So the notion that if we start selling kidneys, we start viewing each other as merely banks of organs and we dehumanize one another. So that's one set of objections. But you can, sell, you can sell blood, you can sell uh, sperm, that, eggs. That's right. The statute is pretty finicky. NODA itself uh, authorizes, it prohibits the sale of organs, corneas, uh, skin, but sperm is excluded, blood is excluded, uh, eggs are excluded. Now, some state statutes criminalize the sale of eggs to produce stem cells, for example, and there is a question about selling embryos, which I've written about elsewhere. But yes, there is a selectivity in terms of what's being chosen, and you might think on that form of argument, this corruption argument, it's strange to draw these distinctions rather than having all of them be prohibited or all of them be permitted. A second family of arguments has to do with what's called crowding out, and this was associated, Richard Titmus, who was a very famous British sociologist, this work is often associated with his work on the blood supply. He compared the U.S. and the U.K. blood supply in the 70s. A lot of people think the work now is controversial, but his claim was that in a society where you allow the sale of something like blood or an organ, you will either A, crowd out the supply, that is, you'll have less of it as a result of letting it be sellable. Some people who would have so donated... Donator, donors don't want to donate because they see that you can buy it somewhere else. Exactly. They're turned off from the notion of donation. 
or, and I think this is the better way of understanding his claims, which were true at the time because of the status of hepatitis and our ability to test for it, but the notion that you get poorer quality versions of the good. So you have people faking their health status, uh, and your concern is that you end up getting a blood supply that's more likely to be tainted. Then a third set of arguments, uh, they're related, although I think they're slightly different, goes under the rubric of exploitation or coercion or undue inducement. And here the idea is people who are poor, that you are somehow treating them immorally by allowing them to sell because they are going to be the main sellers in an open market. And coercion is more of a claim of, or demanding of them something you have no right to demand. It's much more about force. Exploitation is much more about taking advantage of their poverty in terms of the way you're charging them and taking advantage of the feature of their situation uh, that they wouldn't do it if they weren't poor. And undue inducement is much more about overcoming their autonomy, that the offer that's so good you can't refuse it and somehow we're doing a moral wrong to these people. Coercion, that yeah. would be you, uh, you owe a debt. So you need a cellular organ in order to pay that debt? Is that an example? Or? Well, I think that proves too much. So that formulation, if that's enough, I mean, one way to thinking about this is we want to be in a position where we can say A is a coercive activity, but not say that every form of employment is a coercive activity. So most of us, for example, only work because we have needs. We don't work. I mean, I, I love my job, in case you're watching uh, this at home. And I love mine. Exactly. <laughs> I love my job, but you know, there are many people who, and even though I love my job, if they didn't pay me, I'm not sure I would do it. But there's many people who only do their jobs because they're paid, right? So if your moral uh, equation was, I wouldn't do this but for the payment, and that makes something coercive, that's going to prove too much right off the bat, right? So what do we mean when we say something is coercive? Well, we have co conceptions of duress uh, in criminal law and contract law, which are often things involving force. Maybe there's more than that. So an example that's often used by a philosopher like Alan Wertheimer is, uh, imagine that I say to you, you come to me with gangrene, your leg is gangrenous, and you say I want an amputation. And I say, well, pay me $1,000 and I'll amputate your leg. Uh, Wertheimer says if you're in a universal healthcare system where you have a right to the amputation for free and someone takes advantage of your desperation and demands that you pay, okay, that is coercion. You're demanding that they have something, have a right to do, and the person doesn't have a lot of good choices, right? There's a problem in terms of the number of choices they have available to them. But if it's a private physician... And the consequences. And the consequences, exactly. But if it's a private physician and I have no right to get a free amputation, I just say, I want you to do this, right? If you demand the $1,000, that is not itself coercive. So there has to be some conception of a pre-existing right. I'm asking you something to do something that I have no right to ask you to do. And he would say, and I think it's a pretty good account, that that is the requirement of something being coercive. Now again, coercion is not the entire moral ball of wax, right? Something can be exploitative without being coercive. So what do we mean... Let's have an example. Yeah. What do we mean when we say A exploits B? Well, we either mean that uh, A benefits from the transaction and B either suffers or B gets less than B deserves because, we took, because A took advantage of his situation, right? So what would be an example of exploitative transaction? So if it's a snowstorm, this is another famous example, and normally the price of shovels is about to snow uh, today, but the price of shovels is normally $10. And in the middle of the snowstorm, 
I take advantage of your situation, the fact that you have no good alternatives, and I charge $100 for the shovels. Some type of price gouging. Exactly. People would often say that's exploitative because I've benefited, you've suffered, and I've taken advantage unfairly of a situation. But here we have a very clear idea of what the right price should have been. We have a market test, a test about an unpressurized market. What is the going rate for shovels on a day-to-day -day basis? When you try to apply that kind of analysis to an organ market, it's much harder. It's hard to know what the right price for organs ought to be. And one of the things about exploitation that's interesting is that exploitation is a little bit like a conscionability, substantive unconscionability uh, in law, right, in contract law. And the idea is, if there's a problem of exploitation, we should, in theory, be able to reform the contract in a way that satisfies us that it's not unconscionable, that it's not exploitative. So there exists a hypothetical price out there for your kidney that would be fair price for the kidney. And the problem with the kidney market on this account is that you're getting paid too little, not that you're getting paid. Right? So it creates a different kind of view about what the government should do. So is it exploitative if you're not even allowing any type of price? Right. So you could have the view that the existing system where people donate is the one where we should be the most worried about people. So that actually organ markets are morally less problematic than the current system where people donate. And this is just to say the motivations by which people donate, there's a lot of uh, non-monetary exploitation or coercion or whatever you want to call it afoot in the reasons why people donate. If you have a sister or a loved one who needs an organ, the kind of moral pressure put on you is very high. And maybe you might say that actually compared to the money being paid, what you need protection from is that moral pressure, that sense of guilt, not protection from the money. I don't know if I'd go that far to say that, but there are people who say that. Just to say that these two examples, coercion and exploitation, are further distinguished from undue inducement. And there really the claim is it's a deal that's just too good. I've paid you too much money and that's a problem. And notice that they cuts in opposite directions. In exploitation, the sense is I've paid you too little. In undue inducement, the theory is that I've paid you too much. Now my own view again is What's that... What's the problem with paying someone too again, much? My own view, and maybe this is the lawyer in me rather than the ethicist, is that in general, it's hard for me to understand why paying someone more makes them worse off rather than better off. And if you're thinking that you're going to have psychological problems after the fact or health problems, I'd much rather give you a lot of extra money to self-insure against those future risks than very little money. Now, all that said, there is one more family of arguments that I think does have some purchase and I'm much more attracted to, and that is the conception of justified paternalism. So here it's just a claim that we make mistakes all the time about our future emotional states and our future needs, right? We engage in all kinds of reasoning problems emotionally and cognitively when we imagine our kinds of decisions we have to make. And the law may have some role in helping us shape those decisions and protect us from bad decisions. Now my own view is, along with my colleague Cass Sunstein and the like, that the right way to do this is not through a very strong intervention. You can't sell your kidney, for example, or you can't do this. It's instead we should at least first try softer interventions like 
choice architecture, right? What uh, do you mean by choice architecture? By choice architecture, things like opting in versus opting out, making you do things before you get to uh, agree to it. Uh, some kinds of loopbacks where you have multiple choice points to change your mind, and we constantly ask you, have you changed your mind? Waiting periods. There you're talking about cadaveric donation. Cadaveric donation, yes. So although it could be with live donation, too. We should, for example, say you have to wait a year from your initial decision to do a live donation, and only after that year, only after you've signed the same form four times and you've completely you've plenty agreed. of time to think about it exactly so for example so this is to avoid you know the new iphone 7 comes out and i want to sell my kidney because i need it gosh i hope the price is not that high <laughs> i need to sell a kidney to afford the new iphone my contract's not up yet but yeah exactly the fear is that people will make decisions that are good for them in the short run but bad for them in the long run now again in the u.s there's a certain artificiality about this because what we know about kidney donation in the United States is that for the most part it's extremely safe. When we look at the morbidity and mortality rates of people who become kidney donors versus matched cohorts of just normal people, right, their lifetime life expectancy and life quality are very similar. There is some risk in the actual donation itself, but it's relatively on the small side. and I think it is relatively comparable to the risks we are willing to undertake in everyday life. And again, when you compare being a kidney donor to serving in the military, being a fireman, being a police officer, or working on a construction site, I actually think the risk profiles compare relatively favorably. And the code for this interview is 31115. Feel free to stop, pause, or rewind, but the code is 31115. And now back to the interview. It sounds like what you're saying is the law is going a little too far. Instead of banning organ sales outright, perhaps there's a little bit of working room. So I think that's right, but I think the big thing is we just don't know if the law is going too far. So if you ask me what my ideal world would be, it would not, if you made me czar, it would not be to pass the Cohen plan, which has these kinds of incentives. or The Glenn Cohen plan. The Glenn Cohen plan. Well, you can sign on to it too, Joel, right? The I'm Cohen plan, you're on board. We'll see at the end of it. Make sure before you, listen carefully, <laughs> before you agree, right? So it wouldn't be to pass the Cohen plan that is well-designed and everybody likes. It would be instead to run some demonstration projects to actually gather data because, you know, from the armchair, it's easy to say a lot of these things. But, you know, as Yogi Berra once quipped when asked for the difference between theory and practice, he said, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is, right? So I want to make sure to be able to have a little bit of data for this. So I'm hopeful that they will get authorization to do a demonstration project to see what kinds of incentives. Now we can learn some from other countries. In Israel and Singapore, for example, they've had a form of incentive that's not monetary, but is in fact the fact that your loved one or yourself will get a priority for a kidney if you've opted in to be a kidney donor when you die, for example. That's pretty, that's, that assumes that people have quite a bit of foresight. That's right. It assumes people have quite a bit of foresight. I mean, the other thing that's interesting is what happens if your child or your loved one gets the kidney and then you change your mind and you, 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 you uncheck the box you checked, right? There is this question of defection Oh, that's again. also for cadaveric. That's also for cadaveric, right? Okay. So there's this question about, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to enforce it on the back end. They've had some initial success in Israel and in increasing the number of donations as a result of this, but it was part of a huge 
public relations campaign in general, which also had to do with Jewish law and convincing people that some of their beliefs about Jewish law, this being improper there, were incorrect and getting rabbis to talk about this as well. So it's unclear whether this is enough. But I'd like to sort of see us look at the full gamut of things we could do, right? Maybe it's not paying you outright, but offering you a college scholarship to your child or something like that. Maybe it is about giving you priority for an organ that comes up, a transferable form of priority. Or maybe it's something else, right? Uh, but I just think we don't know enough. But right now, our view is nothing. And that's probably not the optimal view. And I'd want to get the data to learn what would be optimal. The U.S. doesn't allow for the, the purchase or sale of organs. What's the case in Iran? So as far as I know, and I've never visited, and it's hard to get accurate information about Iran, but from how I understand it, Iran is the only country on earth that has what I'll call a mixed system, which is that you cannot buy an organ as an ordinary Iranian, but you can sell your organ to the government. So the government is a monopsonistic buyer of organs. The opposite of a monopoly is a monopsony, right? So when you're a single buyer as opposed to a single seller, we call it monopsony. Good Scrabble too, right? right? So the government is the monopsonistic buyer. It's the only authorized buyer of kidneys. So it buys kidneys and then it distributes them through a rationing system like our own. Now, not exactly like our own. There is some discussion about a gift often paid from the recipient to the family. So it's not quite pure. But for the most part, this is a possible system, right? So if you're concerned about uh, selling organs, and this is not a concern we talked about uh, before, but maybe just mention it now, is about distribution, right? The concern, fairness, fairness right? The concern that uh, the organs won't go to the person who needs it most or deserves it most or has the best outcome, but instead will go to the highest bidder, which is a real concern, to, to be sure. One way of solving that problem is by saying that the government will continue to distribute organs the way it does now, UNOS, which is the authorized organ allocator in the United States, uh, an agency that's been appointed to do this. We could apply those exact same criteria, but allow people to sell their kidneys to the government, to UNOS, for this distribution. So if distribution is your concern, your concern is really with buying, not so much with selling organs. And you could have a mixed system, which is what my understanding of what Iran has been trying to put in place for the last few years. So here, that would, the government would set a price. So you could have it's the price. We could qualify buyers based on their education. We could qualify them based on their current wealth. We could also have a program where they currently all donors do get psychologically evaluated, but sellers could be psychologically evaluated. We could require that you get counsel and that you appear before a judge and explain the reasons why you're doing this that you fully understand and take a tutorial or a quiz or something to show that you understand the medical facts. So we could do a lot to just pre-qualify the people who are selling. We could also just have a flat rate that the only way to sell a kidney is at this price, and this price is set by the government. Or we could have- The Iranian a, style. The Iranian style. Or we could have a price floor or a price ceiling, right? We could say no kidneys sold uh, um, above uh, X dollars, right? If we're worried that there's a price that is too much and overwhelms people's autonomy, again, I'm not a huge fan of this argument, but this, this is what concerns you about organ sale. Are you worried there that it may be exploiting the buyer? 
Right. There is this question now that if the price is too high, the buyer might be exploited. And that's what's tricky about exploitation arguments is that at some point it may be that the balance shifts to the other side. And in fact, don't forget the buyers here of kidneys are not people who are using them for art projects or something like that. There are people who are either going through dialysis or about to die, right? They are themselves very desperate to get an organ. And you might worry that actually some of the exploitation might occur on the other side. This is just to say that for each of the concerns you might have about buying and selling organs, there is, in theory, a regulatory intervention that might intercede and might make you less worried about it. There's a remedy for every problem. Why don't we set up a sample study? There's, Try one state. Yeah, I would say there's something of a remedy, right? Again, we're not talking about zeros and ones, things are on or off, but I think we can mitigate some of the problems. Although notice that some of the arguments actually require us to do opposite things, right? So if you're concerned about both exploitation and undue inducement, you're in real trouble because for undue inducement, you're paying too much. For exploitation, you're paying too little. And maybe there is a magic Goldilocks price that's exactly at Just the right, right spot. But unless that's the case, I think you're going to have trouble if both of those things bother you. So those are some of the potential ways that we could introduce a market or that a market could be introduced with safeguards for donors. What about some type of hybrid program. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but this would be some type of incentive that wouldn't necessarily be cash. Yeah, so there's a couple of, of things to say about this. The first is just to say, I think most people who are interested are really interested in incentives, that they don't really care what form the incentives take. So if I knew just from polling America or from knowing from Congress, there's no way I'd ever get a cash system in place. I think that most people would be happy with college scholarships, which have been tried for bone marrow, right, or donations to charity, or burial benefits, or an improvement in your college healthcare. scholarships for the donors, for uh, the donors, or for their family members. So a transferable benefit, for example. So actually, there was this case called Flynn, which involved more marrow, more marrowdonors.org. So you can't sell bone marrow either, and they very cleverly tried to set up this uh, charity that would offer scholarships, among other things, rather than cash, because that looks better in terms of developing a record. And then they went to try to declare the National Organ Transplant Act uh, to be either unconstitutional or otherwise unlawful as to preventing uh, sale or incentives for bone marrow donation. What they ended up getting was a very funny uh, um, holding from the Ninth Circuit, which is there are more than one ways to get bone marrow, and one of the ways you can get it is called apheresis, which is like blood cycling, as opposed to a spinal tap. And the Ninth Circuit held that the actual statute, as a matter of statutory interpretation, did not uh, forbid giving incentives when it was for apheresis, when it was this other way of doing it. So it's when it's the like, less intrusive method. Yeah, and they analogize it to blood because it is you are taking the marrow from blood. So right now, in the Ninth Circuit at least, there was a petition for rehearing en banc, which was denied. In the Ninth Circuit, you can give incentives, whatever kind of incentives you like, for bone marrow if it's done through apheresis, but not through aspiration, which is a little bit funny that we have this very fine distinction, probably not what Congress intended. Or just to take another fun example, uh, imagine that we gave a preference for uh, people who were kidney donors to work at uh, Facebook or our government agency, right? Would that be considered for valuable consideration? The truth of the matter is that, uh, except for people who've tried to challenge the statute and wanted to rule into that effect, 
hospitals in general and transplant professionals try to stay away from the Holmesian bad man line. And even something like paired kidney exchange, where I think there were very good arguments under the statute that it wasn't uh, prohibited by the statute. There was a real chilling effect from the statute because it was close enough and we really needed this congressional action to allow us to do those kinds of paired kidney exchanges. So along with the paired kidney exchanges, why not a pool? If you donate, then you're, you're in this club that gives you access to that club. So there actually is a club like this known as, I think, Life Sharers, it's called. And basically, it's a group of people who get a card, and they agree to only donate to one another if they uh, donate an organ, right? So they sign uh, an agreement to that effect. Now, the agreement's not enforceable, which is what's interesting, but it does kind of have this effect. So the idea is, uh, you know, I'll donate to you, you'll donate to me, we'll only donate to people in the club, not people outside of the club. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.